Welcome to Calling All Craft Beer, your craft beer podcast. Guys, we've been doing this since 2017. It's amazing when I think back how I was out on my ass, didn't have a job, and decided to put together this podcast to share my love for craft beer with the world. Since then, we've gotten into politics, news, sports, fitness, men's health, and it has truly played a role in many people's lives that are out there. So I'm super excited to get going with season six. I hope you guys are too. We've got some great guests for you. We've got some awesome brews to share, and it's time to get this thing started. So let's go. What's going on, guys? Welcome to episode 99 of Calling All Crap Beer. My name is Luke. I'm your host. And before we get into the action, let's crack ourselves. Oh, Bruce. This one is one of the delicious ones that I talked about on the last episode with French Tom, the Sultan of Swole, as he's become known. Uh, it's actually... Um, what is this one called? It's Miami Punch from Spanish Marie. It's absolutely amazing. It is like a Hawaiian punch, sour. And let me tell you, it is definitely um, just a joy. And one of the beers that helped solidify um, Spanish Marie's. What, how can I even put it? It helped solidify Spanish Marie as a. Um, Forced to be reckoned with in South Florida, in my opinion. I know we talked a little bit about it last time, but that was the first time I visited Spanish Marie when they relocated. I actually was the episode that I interviewed Ashley Castro, and they had just opened, and it was kind of a meh experience. It was like they didn't have a lot of beers on tap. They weren't selling anything out of the cooler, and then I... um yeah, that was the time that I that I went to use the bathroom and walked out of the bathroom and the door flung open because they didn't have the stoppers on the doors yet and it hit and knocked the mirror off the wall and put a hole in the, the, the drywall. So I definitely felt like a complete jerk. But Spanish Marie is amazing. Not only do they come up with some of the coolest um, concoctions and like uh, flavor profiles and stuff, but they, I mean, their beers in general are just absolutely amazing. So let me get a sip of this bad boy here. Dude, that's one of those beers that you could literally just chug it down and never um never be the wiser. All right. So let's get into it. So this episode, we're gonna talk a lot about Hurricane Ian and Southwest Florida and kind of what's going on over there. I know I touched a little bit on it with Tom, um, but it I've come a long way and a lot of things have changed and there's been a lot of updates. Which is one of the reasons why I haven't done an episode in a while, because I've been helping over on the West Coast as much as possible, and it's just been extremely difficult to, um, it's been extremely difficult just to, to have any downtime to be able to record or do anything. So, um, Mondays and Tuesdays now are generally looking like they are, um, hired contractor days so they're kind of like keeping the public and i'm still technically considered public even though i am volunteering with a couple of different organizations um 
but really what they're doing is on Monday and Tuesday, they're trying to get like FPNL and the electricians in there as best they can to try to restore power to the area. So I've been primarily serving in Fort Myers beach. Um, but I have been down to Naples and as far up as Englewood and there's a, uh, you know, just a whole lot of crazy stuff going on. So um, first things first, um, I happen to uh, enjoy my first beer. Um, I had going back and looking at my untapped. I actually had a couple beers in the past. I had, Hazify and one other one um, from Palm City Brewing that I wasn't even aware of. Um, They're probably some time ago, but they were in my list from Untap. So, and I had them both on uh, on tap at a South Florida um, restaurant establishment. So, but this was the, my first time going to Palm City Brewing, which coming to come to find out, it's literally like two miles away from my office, which is fantastic. I picked up a four pack of Vibrant Fang, Vibrant Thing which is their, uh, it's a double New England hazy IPA. It's 9%. And let me just say, it is absolutely phenomenal. It's everything that you want a hazy IPA to be. And uh, and it's not overly um, like juicy per se, like so to speak. Um, it is, so it, it is juicy, but it's not, how would I put it? It's not like overly fruity. Like it still has that crisp IPA bite. It is smooth, nice and citrusy, has a lot of hops. And I just, I mean, absolutely enjoyed it. I forget exactly what the hops are and they're not, uh, they're not big on talking about them, but I did figure out what they were. I'm going to see if, oh, here we go. Nope, nope, nope. They don't actually have it here. Never mind. But it is fantastic and I'm definitely going to be a, more frequent visitor of Palm City Brewing once things kind of get back and going. But what I really wanted to dive into and talk about in this episode is kind of what's going on over there and the lack of coverage of, you know, the impact and what's really going on. Like a lot of people, so even just us being over here on the East Coast, I don't think people realize how bad it truly is. Like a lot of people, I've actually come in contact with like friends, family members, church members, you know, people that I know that are like, oh, I mean, it's, it's Florida. They went through a hurricane. You know, I saw there was some stuff that got pretty messed up, but they're back on their feet, right? And I'm like, no, like it's not. We're 26 days post-hurricane today. And there are still people living on the street. There are still people living in tents. There are still people shitting in buckets. It is not in any way, shape, or form been, there's no sense of normalcy for a lot of people, right? The area, especially in Fort Myers Beach, that was hit the hardest is primarily mobile homes. And we're talking a lot of retired, you know, old folks that had put everything they had into these properties. Some of them, even though they were mobile homes, they were beautiful. I mean, we're talking like double decker mobile homes, like some that had like one, two different units, you know, built onto a, a property that they had. And, but a lot of these people, they're on fixed incomes. They use their entire savings and everything that they had in terms of retirement to build these properties and to be able to move down here to Florida to retire. And now they've lost everything. And nobody's doing a whole lot for these people. Now it's so FEMA, the most I've heard of FEMA giving anybody is 1200 bucks. What does 1200 bucks do? Well, I'll tell you what 1200 bucks does. $1,200 will put a family of five in a very cheap hotel for six nights and feed them. That's six days. The most of these people who have lost everything could potentially be up to six months without a place to live. So what is six days? 
the average that anybody got from FEMA was $700 and more people are being denied anything by FEMA than anything else. They're actually being told that they make too much money or they have too much money in their bank accounts. So they don't, they're not entitled to anything from FEMA. And then we got the insurance companies that are diving through as many hoops as they possibly can to try to deny as many claims as possible. And it's just a shit show. I mean, when I went down there the very first time, which was two weeks ago, um, when I finally got the clearance and kind of be able to go down there, they, um, there, you could clearly tell the people that have, you know, an influx of money. Cause there were some houses like in the San Carlos area that were already being like repaired. You know, we had a couple homes where they had crews there already working. They were under generator power, you know, and they were literally, I mean, already rebuilding homes on the water. But obviously these are people that have a lot of money. Now, I don't know what a lot of money is. They could be millionaires. They could be billionaires. They could be hundred thousandaires. I don't know what the extent of the money that they have is, but to be some of the first people in the area, having any type of repair work done in your home is a big deal. When there's still a lot of people living on the streets, relying on food trucks coming in every day and delivering food and um, provision and just basic needs and necessities. And that's the hardest part is that here we are 26 days in and there are still families, children, people that are literally relying upon these um, distributions of goods that are coming through very few and far between. And the sad part about it is that the organization piece is extremely tough because you get with these big companies that are willing to come in and bring things like water, ice, um, toiletries, you know, food, you know, whatever the case may be. But the reality is, is that they're coming in, let's say they come in on a, on a Wednesday, right? And they drop off enough to get people through like a day or two. And then they don't come back till the following Wednesday. Well, now you have these people basically like scrounging to figure out what the hell they're going to do for the next five days when that runs out right? Because they don't have electricity. So how there's nobody has a refrigerator that's working. So the ice or a freezer. So this ice is like lasting them. We're talking about people who are living in coolers that have been gifted to them by a bunch of different places. Now there are a ton of people on the ground that are helping, you know, a guy that I've since become good friends with Mike Gowen is he's a professional wakeboarder who actually lives on Fort Myers beach, lost everything himself. And he has literally been like the Robin hood in the area for everybody. I mean, this dude is like, taking it upon himself to not only invest his personal money, um, but also he's just like the voice on the island. Like he's borrowed people's vehicles. He's borrowed multiple forms of transportation and he'll get packed up with goods and he goes out and distributes it to the people that a lot of others can't get to. Sometimes he has to go by foot. Sometimes he has to go on a bike because there are still a lot of areas that the damage is so bad and the cleanup has so little thus far that you can't even get to with a car. Right. Some of these roads are still completely blocked off to the point where you can't get down there. And it's just it, it, it hurts because really there's not a whole lot of people doing anything about it. And, you know, from a from a governmental standpoint. Right. Like you would. Now, I do remember, you know, I'm not going to sit here and act like this is like a new thing. I remember when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and, uh, you know, hit Louisiana. And I remember going there two or three years post Hurricane Katrina and there were still homes with the tarps on the roofs and things like that. So I know that this is a typical process when it comes to um, natural disasters and storms and things like this. This is unfortunately not something that we are, we were unaware of, excuse me, but it just sucks that at least with the stuff in, in Hurricane Katrina, there was a lot of visibility. 
right? There were a lot of people who were involved. I mean, the New Orleans Saints got involved and they raised millions and millions and millions of dollars. Here we are, you know, Southwest Florida, and I have yet to see anybody come forward and raise millions and millions and millions of dollars. They're talking about a relief effort that's going to be in the tens of billions of dollars to get all this stuff repaired all along the, the Southwest coast. And the most that I've heard of anybody so far collecting is probably a quarter million dollars. And that's actually been collected by, um, you know, Aaron Nash, who is the owner of Weight Nutrition, you know, the company, the company that I run and PFIT, he has a gym franchise and he has actually worked. He started to give send go and he's worked collectively with a lot of people that he knows, you know, in the entrepreneurial space and things like that. And he's been able to collect about $250,000. Now, he also got a gentleman by the name of Charlie Rocket, who is a, and he was a music mogul. He was the kind of, he's the gentleman who founded like Two Chains and Travis Porter and a couple other guys. He was a manager, made millions of dollars managing, you know, people in the music industry, found out he had a brain tumor, went through that, almost lost his life. And then he, when he kind of went through that whole scenario, he came out of it on the other side and decided that he wanted to change people's lives for a living. So he started the Dream Machine Foundation. And now that's literally what they do is they take the Make-A-Wish Foundation to the next level. They go out and they find kids and families that need, that have, you know, in, immense needs, whether it's cancer or other sicknesses or, you know, um, uh, learning disabilities, like all kinds of crazy stuff. And they go in there and they just like provide amazing things for these families and these kids. And Aaron got in touch with him and said, look, we have a massive community of people in Southwest Florida here that needs you. Would you be willing to come here and check it out? And they've actually been on the ground in Southwest Florida going on three weeks now, and they've already distributed well over $100,000. Typically what they do is they'll find a family or an individual or a person. They assess the need. They help them out in any way that they can, and then they give them $10,000 to at least help to kind of get them back on their feet. Now, what does $10,000 do? You're right. In a lot of instances, $10,000 is not going to rebuild a home. It's not going to put somebody back into a property, but it could help somebody survive through the process of waiting for an insurance company or waiting, you know, to figure out what is going to be done about a property. You know, there's a lot of these people that do live in rentals as well. And sometimes this rental properties require assessment. So it takes a while. The rental property has to go through a whole insurance overhaul. And when there's nothing else in the area, because it's all been destroyed, there's not really a whole lot of places that people can stay. You know, you can't just like go up the road to the next like apartment building and move in because there's not another apartment building up the road. And if it is, it's shut down. It has no water. It has no food. I mean, uh, has no electricity and it's kind of in the same boat. So it's a it's an extremely difficult scenario. And there are in the, just this one little area of Fort Myers Beach, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people still that are without completely, you know, they need food on a daily basis, they need ice on a daily basis, they need basic, you know, um, basic essentials and provisions, they need toiletries, they need to toothpaste, you know, I mean, this is the reality is, is they still have running water. So these people, it's like a third world country, they are literally using the restroom in the ocean and buckets, you know, on an empty, um, you know, path that's been dug out in the rubble from their homes where they can. I mean, it's not, it's not fun. You know, like you go there and you see this. I mean, I spot the days that I've spent down there, I've really like held off on going to the bathroom because I don't want to dirty up their area. Like I didn't, you know what I mean? Like I've only had to, I, I mean, I'm going to shit myself one time 
because the, the hardest part about being a volunteer in this situation is getting in and out of the area because they make it extremely difficult the way they have the roads blocked off and cordoned off. And it takes an average of about an hour and a half to get down into the area to actually be able to be free to move about and serve. And then however much time you spend there, to, they've, they've, uh, and it was originally a curfew of 6 p.m. Now they've upped the curfew to 9 p.m. But even if you wait till 9 p.m. to leave, it still takes another 35 to 45 minutes to get out of the area and get back headed towards home because of the traffic. So <clears throat> I was down there like the very first day, probably for like 14 hours altogether. And I'm driving home. And I mean, it, it, I couldn't, it took me about 12 miles before I could find a place that I could actually use the bathroom. And I'm like bouncing in my seat because I had to go to the bathroom so bad. And the funniest part was, is that I really hadn't even eaten anything that day, but it was just, you know, it was just nature and it had to be done. But I've really been, you know, not only that, but a, uh, another piece of that too, is just being respectful of the people and their situations. And I haven't taken a lot of pictures. I haven't posted too much because it's not my place, right? Well, first of all, I don't do any of this for recognition. I'm down there to help people because I care about them and I want to see their lives improve and get back to some sense of normalcy. But in the same respect, I'm here to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I'm not there to be, you know, a lot of you guys, you know, if you've been listening to the show long enough, yes, I love beer, but I'm also a Christian. And that's a very important part of my life. And I'm down there because I'm called, you know, by um, Jesus, you know, and by God to, to assist people, to help them and to do as much as I possibly can to improve their lives in this, this really, really difficult situation. So I'm not going to be on social media posting a bunch of pictures of people, I did post a video of us like unloading some trucks and stuff. And I was like, this is community. And I kind of showed a little bit about what was going on. And believe it or not, even after I did that, I felt guilty a little bit. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to post stuff like that anymore. I mean, I have taken some pictures with people and stuff like that. Like they might want to take a picture with us, but I still haven't posted them. I'll keep them for my personal records and, you know, for memories to me to kind of look back on and things like that. Maybe it's something that I'll share for later on down the line, but I'm not going to share them, you know, any, anytime soon. But the hard part about all this too is, you know, um, I had gotten really upset with um, my pastor. Hey, I'm gonna take another sip of this amazing beer before it gets too warm. Mm. Uh, it's so good, and it's already halfway gone. And there's only two sips. Um, but I had even gotten a little frustrated with my pastor because when I first started going down every day to help, I ran out of money quick because. Not only do you want to make sure that when you're going into these places that you're bringing provision with you for yourself, but I didn't want to go there empty handed either. So every time I would go down, I'm bringing propane tanks, I'm bringing water, I'm bringing toilet paper, I'm bringing anything I can to make sure that I have stuff to hand off as well. But it's also a tank of gas there and back every time I go. So we're talking, you know, 50 bucks to fill up my tank. So we're talking you know, a hundred and what, 50, 50, I mean, five days a week for 250 bucks a week in gas, plus what I'm bringing down there, you know, all that stuff. So I had actually reached out to my church and I asked them because I knew they were collecting money for the relief effort. And my pastor was kind of like, look, like I can't just give you money. Like we have to go through the appropriate channels. We have to get approval of who we're going to partner with and where the money's going to go. And initially I got upset about that. And I actually blasted them a little bit, not my church per se. Like I didn't go online and like throw my church under the bus, but I kind of got upset and I made a couple posts about like red tape and how, you know, there's people who need help now. Why are people holding on the money? Why aren't we out there helping people right now? And my pastor actually got um, upset about that, not at me because he understood that my heart was in the right place, but he got upset because he wanted to explain to me the 
the issue. And when it comes, especially as it pertains to the church, the church itself is exists to, like I said, be the hands and feet of Christ and to present the gospel to people. So there, when they collect money for things like this, for relief efforts and funds, it has to come with the gospel. So when they deliver these, these funds to people, whether it be through basic provision, a water bottle, a sandwich, food, or whatever, it has to come with and from a source that is also delivering a message to them about Jesus. You know what I mean? So, and that was something that I really hadn't thought about. And he was like, you know, we can't just give money to anybody and just have it go out there. The point of the church is to, you know, spread the word of Christ and to evangelize. So, and that was uh, it, it, something that I needed to hear because I was a little bit angry. And once I heard that, and then I saw that they were partnering with, uh, you know, a church called Next Level Church in Fort Myers, and they really were, you know, assisting in cleanup efforts. They were out there giving out food and water and taking care of the community. It meant a lot to me at that point. But there are a lot of companies like, like you see these people like giving, like we talked about this on the last episode with Thomas a little bit, like the Red Cross. Red Cross is a fucking scam. Okay. And the reason I say the Red Cross is a scam is because legally, in order for them to be considered a charitable organization, only 3% of the money they receive in donations has to actually go to the source that they are collecting the money for. So what you're really paying for when you give money to the Red Cross is you're paying salaries, you're paying overhead, you're paying for all their crap, you're paying for them to have steak dinners with their buddies and things like that when they go to like do to do volunteer work. And only 3% of that, that money is actually getting back to the people who need it. Now, the only thing that I've seen the Red Cross do in Fort Myers area since I've been there so far is hand out water bottles with the Red Cross label on them. And my buddy Mike was telling me that he saw the Red Cross like going around and giving people bags of red potatoes. And he was like, you know, don't get me wrong. I get that we have grills and that we can make fires and things like that. But potatoes are probably the furthest thing that anybody is thinking about when it comes to a food product that you would want to eat in the scenario that we're in, when we really don't have a, an easy means of cooking them or anything like that. See, and that was the conversation that I had with a lot of people down there is that these people need on the go snacks, easy to eat, high calorie, grab and go kind of stuff. They need protein bars. They need um, granola bars. They need candy bars. They need things that have a reasonable amount of calories protein have sugar they need energy they need they need that kind of stuff they can just grab pull the wrapper off eat it real quick that will keep in a cabinet you know or in even in a backpack you know without being refrigerated or anything like that for a long period of time and doesn't need to be cooked they that's the kind of stuff that they need going around and giving out fruit that people are going to eat right then and there is not is not a bad idea you know you want to go around and give out bananas with a sandwich and things like that that somebody can actually sit down and eat it right in that moment that's fine but the stuff that people need, like I said, during those periods of time when there's no truck showing up with provision, things like protein bars, granola bars, candy bars, things like that are the best things that they could eat in those periods of time. And if they had people bringing boxes of those down there and giving them out to people, at least that is, you know, something that's more sustainable for people that are in this scenario. You imagine, I mean, realistically, you would have to imagine like being on a camping trip where you get stuck in the woods and you no longer have, you know, like you don't have access to a campfire. You don't have, 
the food that you brought in the cooler with you, all the ice is melted. You know, you got lost in the woods and you're kind of like trying to survive on your own. Like, what are you going to, that's the process that you need to, con- that you need to consider in this situation. Cause that's what a lot of these people are going through right now, you know, and there are influxes of certain things, like in certain areas, like we went down by where the shrimpers are in the, uh, the shrimping district and they had pallets of water all over the place. So somebody obviously had gone there and like dropped off like four or five pallets of water to them. I'm not saying that in time they wouldn't need more water, but at that time, the last day that I was there, they had enough water and more than more than enough to last them probably for a couple of weeks. So there are certain like that's why I tell everybody I had um, invasive species actually reached out to me on Instagram because I commented on an event that they're doing this Sunday and um, this Saturday. Sorry. And I wanted to go be a part of it. And I offered to bring over some donations and drop them off because I'm there all the time. And um they asked, you know, what's needed. And I got a list from the people that are actually there on the ground of things that are actually needed so that it wasn't just a random, you know, um, a random donation spot where they're like bringing a bunch of crap that people don't need. And I'm not saying the heart is there when you donate stuff to things like this, it's absolutely fantastic. But at the end of the day, if you're bringing stuff that they don't need, it doesn't make any sense. It's just taking up room. It's just taking up space. Like, I'll be honest with you, man. Like one of the one of the trucks that we offloaded the very first day that I was there, they had like, I mean, it had to be a thousand boxes of these like uh, alcohol swab, like uh, um, antiseptic wipes. And we were all like, clearly this is like leftover COVID crap because it's, it looks like it, from what I remember, it came from like CVS or something. Half of the boxes were moldy. Like they had been stuck in like a, a storage facility somewhere and gotten wet. And to me, it just made no sense. It's like, why do we have a thousand boxes of antiseptic wipes? Now I get the fact that you may think that people need stuff like this, but when they can't even shower or take, you know, or take a bath or clean themselves, like giving them a, an alcohol wipe per, per se is not exactly what people are going to want. And it was really just a waste of space. And they, we kind of like offloaded everything in the middle of this parking lot and everybody was like, I oh, don't worry. They'll be gone by tomorrow. They sat there for a week. It was a week before people finally came and took all the boxes. And honestly, I think half of them probably ended up getting thrown away because they got rained on and they got wet. And it was just, that's the kind of stuff that asking questions and finding out what these people really need is important because you don't want to just show up with a bunch of crap that people don't need. You know, like right now, some of the biggest needs are like feminine products. They need tampons, they need pads, they need, um, you know, uh, wet naps, you know, like the wet wipes, you know, for men and women, you know, dude wipes, you know, um, like baby wipe kind of things for women, stuff like that. Underwear, you know, clothes is starting to become a thing now because people obviously can't do laundry in a lot of places. There are a couple cool places to have like showers set up for them and they're like external out- outdoor showers and washers and dryers so they can wash clothes. But giving them a little bit extra clothes is cool. Toothpaste, toothbrushes, you know, dental floss, stuff like that is always going to be needed. Water is always going to be in need at some point. You know, it depends on what area might actually need it. But then we get into this grab and go goodies, man. Like they need gas. Like there are people down there that do have like uh, riding lawnmowers and and, um, golf carts that they can potentially get around them. They need fuel. So gas cans, fuel, propane, even those little butane um, like camping stoves and things like that are good because they can cook their food. Um, uh, coolers are always going to be, you know, in need. There had a few people asking for like fans, like little box fans, because they're out there in the in the hot. And then it had gotten cold a few days last week, 
So blankets became, you know, a thing because they were out like in the beach area with all that, you know, um, with all the wind coming off of the ocean and it was really cold. I mean, it only got down in the sixties, but it felt like it was in the forties because of the ocean breeze that was coming across. So blankets became a big thing, you know, hooded people were asking for hoodies, you know, now are those only valid for like a day or two probably. And they probably won't need them again for a few more weeks, but it still needs. And those are like staying on top of what these people need in real time. It makes so much more sense than just showing up with random shit and just tossing it out. And then obviously, you know, everybody, nobody's going to turn down a hot meal. If you can show up with hot food and start handing out stuff, you know, there's been people down there that have given out hot uh, pizzas. There have been, we actually had the um, Cajun Navy relief come and they helped us with a, a with a truckload of, of all kinds of goods. And they also came down with the uh, Baton Rouge um, um, police force and they served up red beans and rice and they had andouille sausage and they had all kinds of cool stuff. And they put together these nice little, you know, uh, to-go meals sort of for everybody. And they had bread and they had donuts and they brought all kinds of easy to eat, just quick grab stuff. And that's what these people need, man. Like, it's just, it's, it's tough for me because we see like when the hurricane, I forget the name of the hurricane, but when the big one, I think it was last year or the year before hit Houston, you know, we saw like JJ Watt, you know, the Dallas Cowboys or he was a Houston, Texas. Sorry. I think at that time, um, you know, they, they put on some like relief effort and they raised like $59 million. Now here we are, we're in Florida and don't get me wrong. It ain't Miami, but you got people like Pitbull. You got people like Gloria Stefan that call Florida their home. You got, you know, the rock lives here. You got all these people that are in this area. Now I'm on the East coast. So there, these are all East coast people, but it's still our home. It's still our state. It's still our neighbors. It's still our loved ones, our friends. And it's a huge industry over there, especially for tourism that has been completely destroyed. And nobody, none of these people have stepped up and said anything yet. Like we literally have local boots on the ground that are the only people that are really getting in there and helping and we're 26 days post hurricane and there's still people living on the street. And that to me says a lot, you know, it just says a lot about the limited care, you know, and, and it breaks my heart because at the end of the day, I wish that I could do so much more. I wish that I was, you know, a multimillionaire and that I could house, you know, a hundred people or that I could get a bunch of people out there and get them in hotels or that I could just go out and help people rebuild their homes. You know, and unfortunately I'm not, I mean, I, I literally went all in in the beginning and actually went a little too crazy and overdrew my bank account and did some, made some stupid decisions because I was so, I let emotion take over and I got so vested in what was going on over there that I wanted to make as big of an impact, as much of a difference as I possibly could right away. And it's hard, you know, I mean, you get over there and you see people that are devastated. You see, I mean, within 14 days of the hurricane, people were giving up already. And there are people that were literally saying out loud that they wish they had just died in the storm because they felt like nobody was coming to save them. And that's terrible. You know, like, I really don't think that a lot of people realize the gravity of the storm and it didn't really hit me. I mean, I'd seen a ton of pictures. I saw overhead aerial views of like the actual shoreline where a lot of the, you know, like um, where a lot of the beach restaurants and stuff had been destroyed. And I kind of figured that that was like it, you know, that was probably the brick of the damage and it was mostly right on the shoreline, but it wasn't. I mean, it extended up to eight miles inland. Um, my my warehouse is actually like right by the, uh, um, say what's it called? Um, Gulf Coast Shopping Center. And I mean, the whole entire signage for the shopping center got destroyed. I mean, there were trees down all over the place. 
multiple um, stores within that the big shopping center got damaged. I mean, it was crazy how far inland it actually went. And they were saying the initial reports from most news outlets were saying that the storm surge was 15 feet. I met a woman um, named Kay who took me to the second floor of their home that was on the water in San Carlos. And she, they had measured from the ground floor of their home to the line on the wall that, uh, that where the wetness was on their second floor was 31 feet. No, it was 25 feet. And their home is six feet above sea level. So that's a 31 foot storm surge. I mean, it's pretty hard for me to believe that 330, 330 ton shrimping boats that are as big as small, like these are, I mean, we're not, we're talking like, I mean, ships, these are not boats. These are not like, these are ships. I mean, these are massive hundred crew, hundred person crew ships. Like these are huge vessels that were just picked up and dropped on land. That doesn't happen with a 15 foot storm surge when these boats are 10 feet in the water. You know what I mean? This is a, that was a 25 to 30 foot storm surge that picked these huge, you know, 600,000 pound boats up and just dropped them on land. And it was insane. It wasn't, it's just intense. And when you get down there, I mean, there's so much devastation. There's so much just destroyed. I mean, I've seen some of the craziest things that have had that have happened to like vehicles. I mean, I saw a BMW X3, um, you know, SUV that literally had a, a, like an 18 inch in diameter tree trunk, like through the back of the vehicle where it, it literally, it had to have been from a tornado because it literally was pushed into the, to the quarter panel and then went upwards and it literally popped the hatch open and then folded the hatch over and busted all the windows out on that side of the car. And so it was essentially like you have this, this BMW X3 that was pierced by an 18 inch round piece of wood. I mean, pierced, like it literally looked like, you know, reminded me of like the, the beginning scene in the movie Hancock where he, you know, flies up in the air with the Escalade and drops it on the needle on top of the building. I mean, it was like that. It was, but it was through the side and rear of the vehicle, and it was literally pierced into the metal, you know, inside of the car. And the car was obviously a total loss, just completely destroyed. And it was, I mean, to see stuff like that, I was like, whoa, like that is extremely, um, it was extremely crazy um, to see that. You know what I mean? And it was just, you see so much down there that was just like in your face. I mean, you're driving up San Carlos Boulevard and there are like huge yachts in the mangroves. Like what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're driving down the road and you're looking to your left and you're looking to your right. And there are like boats in the street. You know what I mean? And you're like, what, where, what, how, like how the hell did that happen? They're everywhere. You know? And then you get down there and there are literally just piles and piles of rubble and mess and, I mean, there was one apartment complex that's on St. Father's Boulevard as you're pulling down there and you get to like the main entrance and exit of this gated like senior community. And there's just a probably a pile on the side of the road, the length of a football field of nothing but washers, dryers, um, dishwashers, refrigerators, like all the appliances out of these apartments were just littering on the side of the road because they had all of them pulled out because they were all destroyed. You know, and it's just, I mean, the devastation is, is 
you have to see it firsthand to really understand or really get a grip of how bad it really is. Um, and I, like I said, I do believe that even in a lot of these like shore areas that a lot of this damage was caused by tornadoes within the hurricane system itself, because you can definitely see where you can see where like tornadoes jumped around. Cause you can see areas where there are like two homes on one side will be completely gone to the down to like the, the foundation where there's nothing left. And then there'll be two or three homes standing that are damaged, but they're still there. And then next to that one, on the other side of it, you'll find another two or three homes that have been completely destroyed, devastated down to the, to the foundations again. So it definitely looks like there was a ton of tornadoes within the system as well. And you know, it's just, uh, it, it's a lot and it's been extremely overwhelming for me. It's been exhausting, you know, trying to be as involved as I possibly can, because even when I haven't been able to get down there, I've been trying to make calls. I've been trying to arrange provision and, and deliveries for things and stuff that people need down there. So I've been trying to put a lot of energy and effort into it. And I really am thankful for, you know, people like, um, Palm city is that was actually, is actually doing something for hurricane relief. Uh, I think it's this weekend as well. Invasive Species is doing, you know, their Halloween tattoo day and they're, they're um, collecting donations and, you know, they plan on making a donation, you know, as far as I, I'm not sure exactly to who, but they're, they plan on um, making a donation to help with the relief and stuff like that. So the all, I know Tarpon River, I saw that they were doing some stuff, you know, online and things like that. I think they partnered with somebody and they were canning water and they were actually bringing it over and delivering it. So it's awesome, you know, and I, and I really appreciate seeing, you know, the people come together and help like this, especially, you know, I'm working with a young lady who that who works or lives over on the West Coast herself. And she's a she's a beer nerd like me. And um, her name is Ashley. She's actually on IG as the craft brunette. And she and I are working together to try to arrange a crawl some type of a brewery crawl on the West coast so that we can bring in some extra business and really help support, you know, some of the breweries on the West coast that got, you know, hit and potentially lost business. Cause you know, we all know that there are very few breweries, especially out there that can sustain something like this and be out of work or be down for any lengthy period of time without potentially going out of business. I mean, most of us right now, especially are paycheck away from losing everything. And I would hate to see some of these, you know, just fantastic West Coast breweries like Palm City, Fort Myers, Beach Brewing Company, Point Evil Brewing, Hop Sized, which is actually in um, Bonita Springs. Um, Big Storm, you know, there's Crazy Dingo was closed for a while because they're actually like a farm style brewery and they didn't have power and they had some flooding for a while. So, you know, I don't want to see like these amazing local West Coast breweries like go out of business because they're you know, right now, obviously the priority for a lot of people is not beer, you know, so, and even though the further you go towards inland, more people are kind of getting back to their daily lives. They're going back to work. The kids are going back to school, you know, things like that are happening. There's still a ton of people that are not going back to work that are not getting back to normalcy. And I can guarantee you that it's going to have an effect on, you know, these particular places and, you know, the amount of people that we have there. So we want to organize this brew crawl, and along the way, we're definitely going to raise some funds and potentially take some donations towards, you know, helping as well. So it's going to be a lengthy process, man. We're probably looking at six months before there's any sense of really cleanup and, you know, down there. 
because you, the reality is, is that most of the rebuild process can't happen until it's all cleaned up. So until everything has been, all the trash has been removed, all the debris has been removed, all the homes have been inspected and the ones that have been deemed, you know, um, no longer viable are torn down and removed. The rebuild process really can't begin until all of that is done. And so we're probably looking at a good, you know, three to six months from the date of the hurricane, in my honest opinion, before the cleanup process is somewhat finished. And that's really when things, when the rebuild will start. And then we're probably looking at a year to 18 months, potentially even two years in certain aspects before Southwest Florida itself is fully back to the way that it was. And that's if it even happens, you know, because like I said, I mean, they're talking about tens of billions of dollars are going to be necessary in order to rebuild all this stuff. And it doesn't seem like that's available to too many people at this point. So it's going to require a lot more donations, a lot more boots on the ground, a lot more time donated, you know, things like that. Now I definitely see within this community, a lot of people coming together and I could foresee a lot more people probably donating like rebuild supplies and, you know, I mean, wood and, and electrical and things like that and actually donating time and stuff to actually help rebuild. I think the hardest part in the beginning is the cleanup effort because it requires so much labor and so much time and, and not everybody can just take off and run down there and help. And that's why that's, this process takes so much longer, I think. And, you know, the rebuild process is going to be long and tedious as well, because you're talking about, you know, permitting and going through the red tape and the BS of, you know, trying to get all that stuff taken care of. I'm sure there will be some people who elude the permitting process and I won't blame them to be honest, because I would want to be able to get back to, you know, living in my home if that were the case and not have to deal with this crap. But in the same respect, it's, it's definitely going to be a tedious process. So I know I went off on like one giant long rant, but I really wanted to bring, you know, an understanding and a sense of what things are really like over there for, you know, our friends and neighbors in Southwest Florida right now. So if you are encouraged by this show, please, you know, uh, when I post the show, I'll post a link to our Gibson Go. Every single dollar in that Gibson Go is going to go right back into the Southwest Florida community exactly like it should be. It's going to help not only with provision, but also also within with the rebuild process and things like that. Um, Spanish Marie, you guys are fucking awesome. Your beers are amazing. I love you and I appreciate you. Palm City Brewing, same. You guys are fantastic. I can't wait to get back over there and get some fresh brews from you guys. Um, I definitely need to try some more of the menu. Can't wait to get over to Fort Myers Brewing Company and Hop Sized and Crazy Dingo and Point Evil and Big Storm and um, Botanical Brewing. There's a few places over there that I really want to hit. And to all my people that are on the ground, you know, keep your heads up. I know most of you probably aren't listening to this show, but if any of you are able to or get a chance to keep your heads up, keep looking forward, you know, stay in prayer and know that God's got you and know that you have a ton of people out here who care about you and are working night and day to try to make sure that we get you going and back on your feet as fast as we possibly can. Um, guys, like the show, subscribe to the show. Please leave us a five-star review and I'm just so appreciative of you. I thank you guys so much. And I encourage you to give, donate. And if you don't have money to give, don't be afraid to give your time. And if you don't have time or if you're unable to physically get involved, prayer works. We appreciate you guys. Be safe out there. Cheers. This is Calling All Crap Beer. I'm Luke. I'm out of here.